looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to read a rather long section, and then we'll uh, be looking at some other sections as I try to help us understand the way of the cross. Before I read, I'll I'll just tell you that uh, this is kind of a shout-out to John. um, But I just have really appreciated this thing that he does, you know? This thing and this thing. And it's helpful for me because I have a tendency to live here. You know, I I go to work here. Uh, Sometimes I react here. And God calls me up here. It's been very helpful for me to see that, this kind of uh, conflict of allegiances. You know, which way am I going to go? And I can't just stay in the middle and be pulled both directions because I'll split apart. Now, we understand this in our life. I mean, we're constantly pulled between these two realities, the kingdom of God and kind of the kingdom of this earth. And as we're pulled between these two realities, I mean, uh, we really struggle. Some of us really, really struggle to release and let go consistently. And, you know, I might make a good decision one time, and then the next time I make a bad decision, and I'm back down here. Uh, We have this kind of conflict going on all the time in our lives. And uh, one of my conflicts is, do I stay up late and do something, or do I go to bed? Now, if I go to bed, I sleep well, I get up early in the morning, I have, you know, whatever, I have kind of peaceful time. I've got two little kids. The only time I can find that's peaceful is like late at night and early in the morning. So sometimes I borrow against the night for the morning. But it's that, it's that struggle of the two realities. It's which, which am I going to choose here, you know? Am I going to choose sleep, you know, which seems to be the better choice? Or am I going to choose to stay up late and play a computer game? Or am I going to stay up late and watch a science fiction movie? My wife doesn't like it. I love Battlestar Galactica. So, you know, which way do I choose on that one? And I oftentimes, you know, choose a good one and I wake up refreshed. And another time I choose a bad one and I wake up tired. But we understand this in our own life. And it's, if it's you staying up late, playing, you know, Grand Theft Auto and you're waking up just totally dead to life or whether it's weightier issues. It's helpful to see this kind of allegiance and struggle that we're under. Uh, when we're dealing with these two kingdoms and especially as we look at it today, I, 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 I hope that you consider uh, this idea continually in your mind of this struggle between the two allegiances, the kingdom of God and, and this kind of this world system, this world's kingdom. Um, because we come to places in our life where we struggle against uh, these two realities most severely. And it's not just on Sundays, I hope. It's every day of the week. And so, uh, on one level, I want God's way. You know, I I can speak it really clearly and it sounds all good. I want the way of the cross. And that's kind of what I want us to focus on today. I want the way of the cross. And I'm willing to get a tattoo that says that. And I'm willing to wear a chain that shows that. And I've got a t-shirt that has a cool little thing on it that looks really kind of aggressive. I'm about the way of the cross. However, we don't just love God's acceptance. Sometimes we also love our friend's acceptance. And what happens when our friend's acceptance is down here? We want to be accepted instead of we want to be approved by God. Well, unfortunately, the way of the cross sometimes eliminates those other uh, lesser allegiances, lesser uh, desires. I love God's affirmation. And when I live for the cross, the way of the cross, I feel God's affirmation, but I also want the affirmation of others. Um, I'll tell you that the hardest part for me, uh, being a pastor, preaching, being in front of people, it's not a natural thing for me. And uh, I was reflecting a little bit on this before, uh, this mo- in, earlier this morning. It's not natural for me. And so when I, when I get up here, I've got to be focused up here. And yet there's, you know, all the time this part creeps in, you know, is somebody going to say something afterwards? Now, if any of you come up and say something afterwards, you've been prompted, okay? And it's not going to count for anything. Um, but it's that reality, you know? Am I just living for this? 
And so with that kind of mentality, realize that this conflict's been going on in the church for 2,000 plus years. In fact, if you look at the fall of creation, that's what was going on there. You know, God said, live for this. I'll make it easy on you. Just do this one thing and live for me. And they say, oh, you know what? That tree looks good for fruit. I should take a bite. So uh, you're not alone. Uh, there's thousands of years of history. But 1 Corinthians 4 is hopefully going to bring this to greater light because this isn't my wisdom. It's not my, you know, my smarts that are going to help you here. It's God. So starting in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgments before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will, both, who will bring both to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now these things, brethren, I've figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant, that's like prideful, on behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you, do not, that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have indeed become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are dis- you are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. And when we're reviled, we bless. And when we're persecuted, we endure. And when we are slandered, we try to conciliate or make our case again. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. What in the world is going on there? You guys ever put your best foot forward and told somebody, man, I am the scum of the earth. Glad to meet you. I've only been here six months, but nobody's come up to me that way during that little, like, gathering greeting time. Nobody said, hey, scum of the earth, what's your name? You know, dregs of the world, good to meet you. Um. But here we have the scripture, and you might, you know, I read a, a big portion of it, and it might be kind of hard to, you know, let it sink in, but I, hopefully I can unpack this by God's help. There's different things to look at. This first little section of, of five verses, verses one through five of chapter four, talks at what John spoke about last week. You guys remember what it was about? Judgment. And you all left with the proper ability to judge others. How did it go this week? And I won't use Dr. Plankenstein in my sermon today. How did it go? Did you get out there into work and were you very good at judging others? Or did the sermon convict you and you're like, I've got to follow God's standard first. I need a couple months to look at this before I can start judging other people's specs. I've got to worry about my own planks. And so, you know, it talks about different elements of this. But last week we looked at, you know, you're settling on God's standards. You've got to see yourself according to that standard. You need to submit your life to match God's word. And then, 
you can look at other people and you can start making proper assessments and lead them on the road that leads to life. You know, give them words, give them instructions that'll help guide them. If we didn't, if we didn't judge, you know, I'd have no ability to speak, ever. I'd just shut up. Because I'd constantly just be thinking, well, I'm not quite right, I'm not quite ready, or I'm not quite whatever. Uh, there comes a time where you have to say, listen, I think the way you're living isn't living. It's dying. And it's time to make a change. We looked at that last week. Hopefully that sunk into you. Uh, we're going to take it a little bit beyond this, but this is the context that we're facing. Paul is here in this church of Corinth. And, uh, you know, if you read the rest of the book, there's some great parts of this book. And I was married right here. The last time I stood right here, I was married. I was on this side, actually. I was looking this way. Uh, but one of the things that was read during our marriage ceremony was 1 Corinthians 13. It's all about love. And, you know, it sounds so good, and, and you're like, oh, you know, may I live up to it? And every day, testing and testing and testing to do it. So you know some of this book. But what you might not know about this book is it was a, a letter that was written out of great turmoil, out of great conflict. You see, there were different people that were involved in this church, different leaders. And uh, I've been involved in the church long enough to know that there's plenty of conflict within the church. You know, just because you close the doors and we start singing songs doesn't mean we're without conflict, right? Maybe. Maybe you don't believe me, okay? But it is true. And so Paul comes in and he plants a church and he says, this is, this is the church of, you know, Christ and we're going to follow Christ and we're going to listen to his voice and, and begins preaching and teaching to them. And another guy comes along, Silas. Uh, you know, he's Paul's right-hand man. And another guy comes along, Apollos, and he comes along and he uh, is a very good speaker. In fact, when you listen to him speak, you just kind of go, wow, that guy can talk, you know, just amazed. And then others came along, and I'm sure they were itinerant. People like Cephas uh, would come into Corinth, and they'd speak, and they'd say, wow, this is great teaching. But then when Paul came back, they said, who's this guy? He can't speak. In fact, he's, uh, you know, fumbling over his words. I almost wonder if he had a stutter or something like that, because they say when he talked, it wasn't impressive. You know, I, I don't know how you guys do this, but I, I, there's certain preachers that I like to listen to. And then there's other ones that I don't like to listen to. Some I like to listen to because they kind of speak my language. They sound very educated, and I feel like when I listen to them, I feel very educated too, you know? Um, I feel like I'm getting smarter when I'm listening to them. Uh, but then there's other people that I've even gone to their churches before, not here, of course, with the uh, now-ordained John Rittenhouse, Reverend John Rittenhouse. No pressure, John, but we're expecting big things next week. Okay. So, you know, all these different people would come in and they presented, you know, maybe a, a better way of talking or something like that. And they'd start looking at Paul and say, this guy isn't impressive at all. They say he wasn't a good speaker. He, he didn't kind of fumbled with his words. He wasn't a strong, charismatic figure. You know what people want in church these days? A, a strong leader. Somebody that you look to and you just go, wow, that guy can accomplish great things. And we love to do that with our leaders, lift them high up. We go, man, Billy Graham, that guy could, he could build a wall with, you know, just sneezing on it, he could build it because he's so amazing. And, you know, look at this, you know, and we got a lot in our area, big preachers that can, you know, build big churches and are great leaders, charismatic figures. But he wasn't that. Paul wasn't that. And then he uh, frustrated them even more by coming in there and working for the job. So he didn't, you know, just come in and preach on Sundays or something like that. He's like, every day of the week, he's working a like a regular job. I was going to say a real job. That's not true. 
he's working a, just a regular work out there among everybody else. And that night he does a Bible study. Or that night he has a prayer meeting or something like that. And he's working. And the reason he's working isn't because the church was a bunch of tightwads and they didn't give money in the offering plate or something like that. The reason that he did that was so that he could have the benefit and the bonus of depriving them the opportunity to support his ministry. I don't even know what that looks like. That is so bizarre. But he says, you know what? I don't want you to support my ministry. I am here for you. All I want you to focus on is what you're going to receive today. I don't want you to judge anything else. And as soon as you start paying something, you expect something. Isn't that true? You know? You pay a little money. I pay a little money out to Costco. And if that thing doesn't work exactly like I hope, I'm bringing it back even if it's in pieces. Uh, That's the way that works. So this is Paul's context in a situation. He looked like a fool to them. They looked at him, the way he spoke, the way, you know, what he had to say, and they just said, this guy is an idiot. What a, you know, he's a complete fool. What can he teach us? Give us somebody else that knows how to talk here, or somebody that's a strong, charismatic figure. And Paul's answer to that is verse 4. The one who examines me is the Lord. I don't care what y'all say. I don't even care what I say about myself. What I, I, the y'all came from Kentucky, by the way. I spent some time there. Uh, I can rent it out to you for party occasions if you need it. But Paul comes along and he says, the one who examines me is the Lord. What do I care? You know, in some senses. I mean, you can take that to an extreme and that can be very dangerous, of course. But what should I care what other people think, right? If God says, man, right on, then I can say, all right, I'm good, I'm good. But then somebody comes along and says, you seem kind of like maybe you shouldn't be doing this. God told me to do it. I've got like a zillion examples of that and I would bore you with the details of them. But I, I've known some people that have made some bizarre decisions in life that make no sense to anybody, not even the church. Uh, I met this lady at one point who, um, who sold everything and she became homeless on purpose because God called her to. And I spent the afternoon with this lady uh, and was talking with her and she made no sense to me whatsoever. I mean, it made no sense. It's like, doesn't God want you to live in a shelter? I, but yeah, under normal circumstances, yeah, but not in this case. He's called me to leave it all so that I might minister to people that are homeless. What? I, couldn't, I don't even know how to preach a sermon like that. doesn't make any sense to me. And yet her life was that message. And it obviously it affected me. That was about eight years ago that I met her. So that context will propel us forward with some different questions. And the reason I use questions is because this isn't about Uh, me giving you everything and you just kind of taking down your notes and memorizing something. This is about you asking questions of your life. The first question I want to ask is, what makes me competent? And I want you to ask that of yourself, not out loud. I'm not that kind of person. Uh, But what makes me competent? And by competent, it means, what makes me confident that I can do the job? And that might seem like, you know, like how does this question connect at all to what we're talking about so far? Well, in verses 6 and 7, it says, Paul says this. He says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos. Remember the circumstances for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that not one of you will become arrogant on behalf of one against the other. So one person says, you know, I'm for this guy. No, I'm for this guy. I'm for Paul. I'm for Cephas. I'm for Jesus. And have this big competition. And he says, you know, that's not what it's about. For who regards you as superior? Now, he actually says this with a lot of irony, and and you have to go back to chapter 1 to get it. But for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as as if you had not received it? What's he getting at here? He's getting at, 
What makes a person competent? He's standing up there, there as somebody that's a leader, somebody that they should listen to, and they're looking at him and saying, you're an idiot. I'm not going to listen to you because you've got nothing to tell me. And still he stands in front of them. Who is competent in that situation? Many people judged him as incompetent. And so you might come to this point and just think like, well, what does make me competent? What gives me the confidence that I can do the job? I'll give you a couple examples. I brought up some examples here, and none of you are going to be able to even see what's on here, and that's good because it's a little embarrassing. This is my resume. Now, one of the things that I'm doing part-time is looking for a job. And uh, looking for a job, I think, is probably one of the worst things you can do with your life. It, uh, it puts you in a position where you have to sell yourself and what you can and can't do, but you never say what you can't do. You only tell what you can do. And so you come to people and you say, listen, uh, they say, have you ever operated heavy machinery before? And you say, yep. And they say, well, go ahead and get that forklift and put that over there. And you say, uh, okay, you know, uh, how do I turn it on? Or something like that. You know, you put your best foot forward. And so I've got this resume here that's my best foot forward. Is this what makes me competent? You know, these different things that I list here and I say, I can do this or I can do that or I've done this and I've done that or I've seen this success and I've seen that success. Is this what makes me competent to do something, anything? I've got another example here. Now, this came to me in the mail a couple days ago and this is from my alma mater, the great Westmont College. And uh, John and I both graduated from there, so this is a, you know, y'all go there if you can afford it. It's very expensive. Um, but Westmont, they send out this thing to me every year, and one of the ways that they, I guess, keep their bottom line in the, in the black is they send out these things to alumni, and alumni, alumni, and we're out there, and we're supposed to give them money. And so they say, listen, Westmont's doing some great stuff. Westmont is in the midst of perhaps the most important chapter of their life, a new president, an approved campus plan, a historic down payment on a new campus building in, in the form of a $75 million gift and a student body rated as one of the most talented among national liberal arts colleges. Wow! Isn't that awesome? Does that make them competent? They got $75 million sitting in an account somewhere to build a building. Is that what makes them competent to do the work that they're supposed to do from God? Well, the funny thing with that is the only thing that makes us competent with God is God. If I'm trying to do something for God and I do it in a, a strength or ability or talent I have in myself, uh, that doesn't make me competent to do the work. If I get up here and I, you know, I'm a good speaker, which I don't count myself as, or if I get up here and I think that I'm a very convincing person or something like that, it counts nothing. What makes me competent is only God. Always God. And so this kind of uh, breaks at the reality of the two kingdoms again. And the two kingdoms here are, as they're played out in the scripture here, it's, the, it's the, uh, the upper kingdom, the kingdom of God, which focuses on humility. And what does humility do? We learn this at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Humility says, I have nothing. I am completely impoverished and poor in spirit. I'm a wretch. God help me. And he builds up from there, right? But that's this kingdom, the kingdom of humility. I'm, I'm humble before God. It's all about God. It's not about me. And then this kingdom down here shouts at us and says, no, you can do it. Sometimes it says you can do it yourself. Sometimes it says you can figure it out if you don't know how to do it. But this kingdom is all about the P word, pride. Pride. I can do it myself. I don't need anybody's help. Pride laying down here. What makes me competent? I can't get the job because I can do the job. I get the job from God because... 
It's all about him. It's about what he can do. In fact, all of the Corinthian believers were examples of this. They were nobodies when God found them. Now they puff themselves up to thinking, like, I can figure out what's right and what's wrong. But uh, they were nobodies. You might count yourself today as somebody or nobody or, any, I don't know, anybody or something. or I don't know. Uh, but you are competent only because of what God can do through you. Now, we're talking about this reality. I'm not talking about this. You can get A's in school without praying to God. You can be valedictorian of your class. You can be very popular. You can be the most beautiful person in the yearbook, you know, most beautiful or something, best smile or something like that. You can be all that down here. But the only way you're going to be competent for God is by being humble before him. It's him that works through you. It's it's his power. That's the first question. It's this whole thing of, you know, pride versus humility. The reality is you've received something and it's only what you've received that makes you competent. Now, you know, deal with that for a while. You know, think about that for a while. It's only what you've received that makes you competent. I can give you a million examples. One of them is love. The only way you're going to be able to love competently in a God-honoring way is to first be loved. And I could go further, but I won't. Second question from the text that I want to get at is, when do we get heaven? And this question seems like, oh my gosh, what a stupid question. Now, I've been at funerals before, and at funerals, you talk a lot about heaven and the ever, you know, everlasting and, you know, it, we'll see them one day and you talk about things like that. God's going to prepare a place for us and so if we had a shack down here, we'd get a mansion up there and all that stuff. And it's all, it, you know, it's very true. But we look at this, you know, reality of when do we get heaven and we think, some of us think, like, it's way down there. Man, my life is so messed up right now. I'm glad that heaven is way down there and I'm looking forward to something better. But there's some people that think they deserve and they ought to get and they're going to claim it now, heaven now. And that was the way it was with the Corinthian believers. And so Paul says this in a very biting fashion. He says in verse 8, you are already filled. Now, contrast that with Paul. He's hungry. But the Corinthians, they're already full. They find him wanting and and, and a fool, but they are already uh, wise. So it says, you know, you're already filled. You've already become rich. You've already become kings with us. And indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we might reign with you. It's a contrast. He says, you guys have uh, brought yourself up to this place where you feel like you got all that heaven has to offer now. You've got God's power now, and that's what uh, all the conflicts of chapter 12 and 14 were about. They were very gifted people and operating in what we would call the Spirit's power. And all these miraculous signs were going on. And as they were going on, they were saying like, man, we're in heaven now. But the problem was that was kind of all the reality that they looked for is the heaven now, not the heaven to come. So they were already filled. They were already rich. They were reigning as kings. And you might think this has no bearing on present day. Does it have no bearing? When you pray for someone to get healing, why do you pray? Well, James says the prayer of a righteous man will make a sick person well. That's why I pray. It's obedient to the scripture. And I don't want people to be sick here and now. Is there any way that you can pray hard enough, long enough, extensively enough so that nobody you ever know or anybody you ever come in contact with will ever be sick again? You got that kind of prayer life? You got that kind of faith? I believe that the reason why your prayers for people being healed isn't a lack of your faith. It's the fact that heaven isn't here completely yet. If we get heaven all the way here now, why do we care about a mansion in heaven? If we get all the healing we want here and now, why do we care about that day when there's going to be no more sickness you know, or death? If we get everything that we want right now, what's there to look forward to? 
Maybe that's a question you ask or maybe it's one you don't ask. And there's a lot of present-day examples of this. My personal one is uh, about, mm, what, 15 years ago, I was in my first year of seminary and I was uh, diagnosed with diabetes. Around finals time, my blood sugars, if you know what that is, were, was running up in the 800s. And I was like, some of you guys know. And, uh, and so I'm like, I'm just like a walking zombie. I'm just like, you know, going to class. And it's finals week. What a horrible time to be a zombie. And I'm walking around, I'm like, yeah, where's the study questions? Where's the study session? I'm just like zonked out. I didn't figure out what was going on until one day. I, I, I like, I literally, I just kind of blacked out while I was walking. I was still walking too. I was like, oh, what would I, how'd I get from there to there? Anyway, so I, I went to the hospital. I said, oh, dude, you, you got diabetes. And so this kind of course of events happened. And that's part of why I'm here, I think, and not somewhere overseas. So all these things happened in my life. And, and I, I came and I thought, you know what? There's people that I've heard about, I've seen on TV, that have a healing ministry, and I'm going to go to one of them, and I'm going to get healed because the, the power of God moves through them, and I'm going to be healed by them. So New Year's Eve, I went down to this guy's church. He might not know the name. Benny Hinn? You ever heard of him? Okay. See, he's this guy. He's this guy. You know, he blows on people, and it's not his breath. It's, it, and they fall over, and all this stuff happens. Anyway, I went to his church, New Year's Eve, and I'm like, oh, yeah, God's going to heal me. I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. And the way that they do things there is, they get like a prayer counselor that hooks up with every person that comes in there. And so this one lady uh, is hooking up with me, and she's not hooking up, you know, but she's like, she's like, I'm going to, pr- so forget I just said that part. Come alongside of. So she came alongside of me, and she said, listen, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be praying for you and, and helping you through the process. I said, yeah, thanks, praise God. And so we're praying and, and praying for the healing, praying for the healing, praying for the healing. She's like, do you feel anything yet? Uh, no. You feel any electricity yet? No. Heat? N- no. Uh, uh, an openness to your mind? Mm. No, I don't feel anything. You know, it's getting later and later at night. I'm starting to feel kind of tired and foggy. And she's keeping out, you know, do you feel it yet? Uh, no. Well, eventually the time comes, the service is about over, and Benny Hinn starts, br- you know, bringing people up to show them off that all these people got, well, that might be negative, but they're bringing people up to declare the healing that they just got. And so they're going down the rows, and all of a sudden, the row packs out. I mean, it's like this row is probably like about six people wide. And we're all just like trying to get up to the front so that he can go on us or something like that. And so we're walking down the row and, uh, and everybody there, is, you know, all I hear is, you know, claim your healing, claim your healing, claim your healing. I'm like, I claim it, I claim it, I claim it. <laughs> and, and so I'm going down, you know, closer and closer. And I only got about halfway. And about halfway, there was this mother with her uh, handicapped child. And she's like, she's like trying to shove him through the crowd. And she said, make way. He needs his healing. Or something like that. And I just went, oh my gosh, what are we doing? He's, she's dragging this kid up there like, my kid's broken. Heal him, God. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh. You know? And so I went back down to my seat. And I thought, God, if you're going to heal me, heal me. But not this dog and pony show. I mean, not this thing where people are just crying out. And I thought of what it was like for Jesus when he's healing people. And the throngs are coming. And they're just like, I just need to touch him. And I felt like that, and I thought, oh, man, God. I, and so I, I went back and sat down, and he said, did you get it? Electricity, I said, you know what, I, I'm kind of done. I'm done talking. If God wants to heal me, he's going to heal me a different way. So I wasn't put out by that. I wasn't healed. I wasn't put out by that. About a month later, uh, I took a weekend off. I was in seminary still, and I took a weekend off, and I went off to the seminary. It was like a Catholic thing, and I was kind of cloistered in my own room and fasted for like three days. You know what diabetics do when they fast? It's not good. It's not pretty. Anyway, so I fasted for three days, and I'm like, God, I'm just believing, and it's not about the show anymore. It's just about me and you. I'm believing. I wanted my healing now. I wanted heaven now. And I came out of that weekend, and my 
and blood sugar was real high. And <laughs> I had to talk to my doctor and tell him I'm an idiot and stuff. And he's like, you did what? And so anyway, but the present day example, are you just hoping it's going to happen here and now? Do you think you're going to get the best job ever here and now? I want it, you know. I'll give you a resume if you can help me find it, you know. But do you think you're going to get it all here and now? Do you think you're going to get the perfect home? It doesn't have dry rot or termites or toxic mold in the walls. You want it all right now. You want heaven now. Now, I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody that's got a house or prays for healing. We're commanded for that, and we are sons and daughters of God. He wants to bestow on us blessings that we're uncomfortable receiving. He wants to give us that much. But we need to be somewhat conscious that heaven is not just now, it's also to come. And it's more like a movie preview. Um, When uh, uh, Transformers came out, now, you guys might not like that either, but, you know, I'm like... I'm an old guy, and back in the 80s, that was kind of my time, and Transformers were a big deal. And so I'm thinking, I want to see this movie. And I I look at the previews, and the previews are awesome. It's all the action stuff. And I think, oh, this is going to be a phenomenal movie. And then you go to the movie, and you realize, they showed you the best stuff in the preview, kind of. It's like the preview was free. Why didn't I just keep it with that? Well, because I can never say no to seeing the whole thing. But that's what heaven's like. You're getting a preview now, and you're getting the taste of some of the best of what God has to offer in forgiveness, in the way of the cross, in healing, some of you. In uh, provision, some of you, man, God has really blessed you with real riches. And he's done that because he loves you. And you've experienced some of that now, but heaven is not just now. It's now and coming soon. Otherwise, we make no sense of Paul and we count him a fool as well. Because his example is just amazing. And I, I read through it. I'll just say a few things. He says, we are fools for Christ and you're prudent. We're weak and you're strong. We're disti- uh, you're distinguished and we're without honor. To this hour, we're hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. And the word for roughly treated, just an example of it, is to strike with the fist. It's the same word that's used not many times in the, in the New Testament, but it's the same word that's used for Jesus when he was being uh, on trial and he was being crucified. And they said, bam, you know, prophesy who hits you, Jesus. Bam, prophesy who hits you. And it's the same word that Paul used when he was talking about being uh, buffeted by Satan. He said, Satan is whacking me with a thorn in the spirit, so a, a thorn in the flesh. So he's not just like going, no, Satan's not just going, oh, does that hurt yet? Oh, how about that? No, he's like, bam, let's drive that one into you, and this thorn's really going to stick in there, and it's going to hurt you, Paul. It's being struck. This is something Paul was familiar with. He went to a church, uh, I think it was in Iconium, Acts chapter 14, and he goes in there, and he preaches up a storm. People are pumped up and excited, and then all of a sudden the crowd turns on him. They drag him to the end of town and stone him to death. And it just so happens they didn't use quite enough stones. And so he kind of like recuperates. And he's like, oh, man, that hurt. And he's like, here, somebody help me back into town. He goes back into town and starts preaching again. Huh? If you guys had that approach even slightly, one of you throws a Bible at me. I'm probably not coming back. <laughs> Paul, Paul gets dragged out of town by y'all and beaten to within an, inch, in, within an inch of his life. And he's like, okay, and next Sunday I'm going to be talking on something. And you're like, oh, my gosh. He had an understanding that heaven is not all just now. It is yet to come. The big picture. All the time I have remaining, I want to talk about the big picture. Now, again, the, this, this uh, truth of, you know, when is heaven coming and, and, and all that stuff, it's a little bit less about these two kingdoms. Uh, there's parts of it that are true, you know. This kingdom says, I want mine now. You know, I want it now. If I'm, if I, you know, I don't want to go into the rest of my life as a diabetic. I want my healing now, God. Um, And then, you know, looking at heaven from God's perspective is like, I hope up here. My hope is in this kingdom. 
No matter what happens in this present world, my hope is in the kingdom to come. The big picture, this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. There's two ways to live that I understand based on this passage of Scripture. One way is the self-life. And don't need to explain it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. We struggle with it every day. It's this kingdom. It's the self-life. But then there is this amazing way that is inexplicable. Um, It's uh, inconceivable, some might say. You don't know what it could be because it is so far beyond our mentality and understanding. It's the way of the cross. And by the way of the cross, I'm not talking about the symbol of the cross. I'm talking about Christ crucified. He is our model that we follow. And so if he goes into suffering, he's our model to follow. Not that we choose suffering, but we follow him and suffering is the byproduct. And we've talked about that also in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. But these two kingdoms, the self-life and the way of the cross, we've seen the Corinthians' way of self-life. They judge by human standards. Their competence comes from themselves, their understanding, their abilities, their desire for gratification now. They want heaven now. But then we see in Paul the way of the cross, and he looks only to Jesus, and he says, you know what, this is what I want to shine. He says over and over again, I read this again this morning, he says over and over again, chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, he says, I was with you, and I uh, made it my firm determination to only know Christ Jesus and him crucified. And so when I spoke, I didn't try to be smart about it, tell uh, witty uh, jokes, or to uh, give uh, you know, clarifying illustrations. I just said, Christ and him crucified. And that's all he did with a display of God's power. And he said, that's, that's enough. That's all that needs to happen. But it conflicts with this self-life. You know, I've figured it all out. I, I, I'm competent in myself. I, I want it all now. And the way of the cross, in the light of that world, makes no sense whatsoever. And so Paul uses these last figures, and this is kind of how I'll finish up. Is he uses in verse 9 this uh, uh, image that he calls the spectacle. He says, I look on us, those that are uh, the, the followers of Jesus, those who are following the way of the cross, I look at us like we're spectacles at the end of this procession condemned to death. And he's looking at this image that I think relates to the conquering generals of Rome. And when they'd conquer a place, they'd really, you know, they'd conquer that place and they'd put a lot of people to death. And then the best of their captives, like kings and princes and stuff like that, they'd bring home with them to put him to death back at home, back in Rome. And so they'd drag these people along, and they'd be at the very end of the procession. The general would be up in the front in power and gold, and he'd be looking all good and powerful and strong, and then his army right behind him, and then probably you know bands and trumpeters and stuff like that. And at the very end, you see the people that are bound, led away to death and in chains. And they're not looking up, you know, and they're, just, they're bowed low. You know, they've surrendered to the king, and they're being led along to death. And Paul says... I'm not the king in the front. I'm not the army behind. I'm not even a trumpeter. I'm not even in the crowd. I'm one of those guys in the very back that's being led along to death. And it's a spectacle. This life, the people of this world look at that spectacle and they say, right on, it's about time they shut that guy up. He's just been talking about Jesus Christ and I hate it. He lives a life that doesn't make any sense to me and I hate watching him. I hate seeing him at work. I hate feeling bad about the fact that I'm cussing around him. I hate feeling bad about the fact that I got that poster up on the wall of that woman without any clothes on and he hates it, but he never says a word. And I hate him for it. That's the way it is. I mean, you might not work there. Uh, I might not work there either, but you know, it's the reality. We live in that world. 
And so those two kingdoms are there. And the spectacle, he says, I am like one that's led away to death. And the world is looking at him and saying, it's about time somebody should shut that guy up. And then heaven's looking on. It says angels are also looking at this spectacle. And what is their assumption? What does the kingdom of God see when a saint of God is led away to death and condemned by the world? And they look at him and just go, man, kill him. And they tried it with Paul and it didn't work. The kingdom of God looks on too. What does the kingdom of God see with a man like Paul? I don't need, probably don't need to say more. He gives these contrasts between them and the Corinthians, and I've, I've kind of gone over them several times, but we're fools for Christ's sake, and you're prudent in Christ. We're weak, and you're strong. You're distinguished, and we're without honor. He uses these to shame them. He's like, I've come into your midst, and you think you're everything, and you think I'm nothing. You don't listen to me because you think you're everything. You don't need anything more. And so he tries to shame them into realizing, don't live this way. Live by way of the cross. Christ crucified. It'll make no sense. But you follow it and you'll have a life that you never dreamed of. The present reality. This is probably what convicts me the most, really. Paul's present reality doesn't look at all like mine. How many of you guys are going to go out to Carl's Jr. after church today? <laughs> I might not go there. I like Taco Bell a little bit better. But, um, but I bet you none of you are thinking, you know, at the end of today, I think I'm just going to be hungry because I've got no money. I walk to church. I don't even have bus fare. So I'm going to be hungry by the time I get home to my little tent underneath the overpass or something like that. None of you are probably thinking that. And if you are, I'd love to talk to you. I would. But he says, to this present hour in verse 11, we're both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, and homeless. And I think, oh man, my life doesn't look like that at all. You know, going hungry is like eating dinner an hour late. You know, thirsty is like, uh, you know, I never thirst. I'm never probably within, uh, you know, further away than maybe about five minutes away from a cool drink of water. I, I don't understand any of this. And it convicts me. I think, have I followed the way of the cross? Or have I so demanded that I want my here and now that I'm down here? I'm like, well, where's my cold water? John, I'll preach for you, but I'm, you better give me some cold water, buddy. You know, what is it about? The way of the cross, Christ crucified. This present reality kind of comes to a conclusion with the scum. And I actually tried to look this up and try to understand a little bit more what it meant. Uh, I found, as I did a, a Google search for it, that there's a church called the Scum of the Earth Church. And it's in Denver, Colorado. And I'm thinking, I want to go there. You know, Scum of the Earth Church. I wonder what's going on there. And, um, you know, what are they thinking? To call themselves the Scum of the Earth Church and put a, you know, pull, both, you know, put a mass mailing out there. You know, come to the Scum of the Earth. I think, who's going to buy that? You know? Um, and I'm sure they have a, a way of, you know, saying goodbye to each other, and the pastor gets up right there and he goes, you are the scum of the earth, you know. Go out there, you know, or something like that. I don't know. Um, so, and they planted a church, actually, in Colorado Springs called the, the Refuse of the World, which is like the second half of this. They're like, you know what? I'm, I'm like, I don't know what they're doing. I, I wonder if they're taking pride in their filth. You know, they're like, man, we're the scum. I'm so excited about that, and I don't know if that's what we're supposed to be. It's a byproduct. Paul says, we're the scum of the earth. We're considered that way, but it's a byproduct of us following Jesus, and that's where we're at. And so the explanation of what is the scum, I, uh, the thing I do right now for work is I work at a place where I drive trucks and forklifts and stuff like that. I really didn't know how to drive a forklift when I got there, but I didn't tell them I did, so I was okay. Anyway, but I, I drive this truck. It's a big, uh, it's a big freight liner. The biggest thing you can drive with a Class C, 
And so I'm out there driving my truck, and I pick up stuff. Sometimes it's medical supplies that hospitals don't want. Sometimes it's food products that people have an overabundance of or something like that. And I bring them back to the warehouse, and I unload them. At the end of the day, after I've done a bunch of these runs, I unload the thing, and the place is a mess. There's some stuff that leaked out of a bottle from a hospital. I'm like, I don't even want to touch that. There's dust and dirt everywhere just because warehouses are not clean places. They're naturally dirty places. And so I'm in there, and I'm sweeping. I'm scrubbing out the bed of the truck. And on these days when it's hot... Not only am I cleaning out, you know, continually making the truck cleaner, but I'm making myself dirtier. And when I get done with that thing, I'm just like, I am scum. I don't want to come home because when I come home, my kids are going to want to get all over me. And I'm like, I'm scum. Don't touch me, you know. And that's what this word is. It's two different words. One of them is the sweepings off the floor, everything. I got to think floors back in those days were usually dirt. And they had like little animals around in the kitchen. If you've ever been to Africa, you know what I'm talking about. You know, little chickens in the kitchen, like pooping around the food and stuff. And you're sweeping all that stuff out. I'm sweeping out the bed of the truck. And then it's also that layer of scum that's on you. And when the weather gets hotter and you're outside doing work, you feel the scum. You feel like there's a a nice half-inch layer of scum on you. And you go and you shower up, and you see the brown stuff, you know, coming off you. And you're like, I did have scum on me. I'm scummy. That's the word that he's using. The way people are looking at Paul right now is the scum. They're like, that's who you are, Paul. You're the scum of the earth. And he doesn't defend himself. He says, well, if you really knew me, you wouldn't come to that conclusion about me. He doesn't say that at all. He says, you know, you're right. In your eyes, I am the scum. But I don't live for you. I follow Jesus, the cross of Christ. So I'm done with what I want to say. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. But I want us to focus for the last few moments we have together because you're going to rush out into a world that's going to rush you along. Considering these two ways, living for yourself only and living the way of the cross. Now, I might not have done a great job explaining that and the scriptures will always do a better job than I. But the way of the cross, the way of Christ crucified, we look to him as our model and as our example and as our lead. The unfortunate thing, as we've been learning from John 2, is there is no middle way. I can't stay here in a bubble in between these two, being connected somewhat to the way of the cross and being connected somewhat to the way of my self-life, you know, my self-interested life. When you do that, you break in two. You become, I think you probably become, at some point, insane because you try to hold together two things that cannot fit together. It's like trying to cram two strong magnets together and you just can't do it. But you're trying to do it. You're trying to have all that God has for you without giving up all that the world's given to you. And the way of the cross just says, only this way. Always this way. We are in love.